What's it like when one of your friends on death row is led away to be executed? You have a prepaid call from William A. Sapira. An inmate at the California State Prison, San Quentin. This call and your telephone number will be monitored and recorded. I had to be a different, complete guy, which is the guy who walked walkways of San Quentin's death row and without a gang, without a, a group of people around me, it was just me. Soon after you went into to be on death row, and you didn't really understand the prison workout system so much. But then he said, we're going to do 75 sets of it. To me, that seems extreme. So I'm wondering if there's a danger of overtraining, wearing yourself out so that you're... No, no, that's actually funny. That's funny. I'll tell you why. That's a good one, man. I'll tell you why. Because I'm going to tell you why. Because the way that I Welcome to Death Row Diaries. I'm Matt Ralston. And I'm William Nagero. And Bill, today we're going to give the conclusion of the Candyman, Dean Coral, and how that whole case worked out. If you guys haven't listened to the first parts, I would do that now. Um, but we'll fill you in real quick. Before that, want to remind everyone to follow us on Instagram and Facebook at Death Row Diaries and on Patreon at Death Row Diaries where we have bonus episodes. We're doing one a week now and you can get those on Patreon as well as Anchor. Um, but Patreon seems to be easier for a lot of people unless you are dedicated to the Spotify platform. Anyway, that's getting a little complicated. Now, Bill, before we go into Dean Coral and the conclusion of this story, we do have a listener-submitted question. Okay. And this is from our new Patreon subscriber. And I should have asked his exact name, but I'm just going to say JBD. And he says, Bill... When I've watched a lot of TV and movies, it seems like they, uh, around Christmas time or other times, the prisoners put on kind of a show, like a talent show, or there's a performance or a celebration of some sort, a communal type of holiday celebration. Is that a real thing, or is that just a thing in TV and movies? Yeah, that's just TV. That doesn't happen on death row or any other place that I've been. Usually guys just, you know, if, if it's Christmas time or whatever, they're just looking for packages from people. Hopefully people are going to give them something because of the holidays. They're not, there's no communal, you know, let's sing Kumbaya together. That may help and it happen in lower prisons, um, main lines, maybe even the prison I'm in now. I've never been here through Christmas, so I don't know. But if we're talking about level four prisons, level five prisons like San Quentin's death row, that does not happen. And the closest thing to that is, you know, visiting on on, uh, on Christmas when your family comes to see you. But they can come see you 365 days a year. So, no, that doesn't happen in real prison. What about performances from musical artists and things like that? Of course, the Johnny Cash album comes to mind. Sure. You know, in, back in the 70s and 
you know, there was people, artists would come in, Carlos Santana's another one you can mention, they would come into the prison, but I don't think that was because of Christmas. Even Metallica formed, uh, performed and filmed a video, I think it was Saint, uh, I forget right now, but they, uh, Saint Anger, I believe it was called, at St. Quentin. But it wasn't because of Christmas or anything, but, you know, there, there are some places to have them. Lower level prisons have, you know, some type of celebration. But in real prison, that doesn't happen. All right. Well, thanks for the question. And let's move on now to Dean the Candyman Coral. Can you just give a quick recap, Bill, of what this guy's about before we get to the conclusion of the story? Sure. Well, uh, the Candyman, Dean Carroll, uh, was an American serial killer, killed in upwards of 30 boys and young men. He would lure them into his web through his accomplices. Most of the accomp- uh, his accomplices had friends, and he would lure those kids into his clutches by, you know, for money, or can- even candy, because the guy owned the candy factory. That's how he got the name, the Candy Man. Uh, he was a gay serial killer and he killed boys he tortured them he sexually assaulted them and all with the, with the help of his accomplices uh which were two and they basically just brought kids to him which is that whole thing of candy little boy that term comes from this guy dean the candy man so american serial killer died already he was killed by well we're not going to give that up till the episode's over with but he definitely died in a very violent way. And um, he is probably a serial killer, one of those names that really brings a real creepiness and a real uh, sense of visualization when you hear the Candyman being a serial killer. Yeah. So his two accomplices, David Owen Brooks and Elmer Wayne Henley, who were accomplices but also you know, victims themselves, but at this point, I think that they have their own agency. So, uh, this all culminates on the night of August 8, 1973. Yeah, you're actually right. Um, so I think that's where we should start is what really happened to the candy man and how does his story end? And you mentioned that, on that night of August, well, it's actually the morning of August 8th, the night of August 7th, uh, Henry, who is um, one of his accomplices, he invites a 20-year-old named Timothy Cordell uh, Curley to attend the party at Cordell's residence. And that's fine with the candy man because it's a boy. And Curly, whose name is Timothy, he's a casual acquaintance of Coral's as well, and he is intended to be the next victim. Um, so, of course, Brooks was not present. As I mentioned before, he was his wife or his fiance was having a baby. So it was only Henley, and the two guys come over Coral's house, and they sniff paint together, they drink alcohol, they smoke weed. But at some point, they decide to leave, and they promise to come back, and Coral says, fine. But Hindley and Curly, they actually drive to Houston Heights, and they pick up 
um, one of their friends who is a 15-year-old girl. When they get to Curly's Houston Heights uh, residence or near his neighborhood, um, that girl comes across the streets and she's crying. Her name is Rhonda Louise Williams. And she is really in bad shape. Her father, who's drunk, has beat her. So Henley invites her to join him and Curly at Coral's home. So they move to his home. And of course, this is not jive with the candy man. He's upset that these two boys, especially Henley, should know better. And this ruins his plans to kill the other young man. So, you know, they start getting drunk together. They're smoking marijuana, they're sniffing paint. And Coral is basically a black widow. He's just watching these kids because he intends to do what he's going to do. It doesn't matter who's there. He's going to do what he wants to do. So at some time, these kids pass out. They've been using so many drugs that they have completely just passed out. And unfortunately, when they wake up, specifically Henley, his, his accomplice, he's on his stomach and Coral is putting handcuffs on him. And he's taping his mouth shut. He has his ankles bound together. And Curly and the young woman, uh, Williams, are also lying side by side, already roped, gagged. They are have adhesive tape across their mouths. They're lying face down. And Curly has been stripped naked. Curly, of course, is uh, the other young man, the 20-year-old young man that was supposed to be the intended victim. I mean, can you imagine this, uh, Matt, the, the, the scene here? You, know, you wake up, you think you're partying, and you're bound and gagged to be a victim. And his accomplice is also bound and gagged because now it looks like he, too, is going to be a victim. Yeah, I feel like, obviously, all these people are victims. It just says so much to me that, you know, that their friend their peer this girl had just been beaten up by her father and i i feel like that's just the scene these kids are in right like that kind of thing is just typical and that's why they're at coral's house pretty much yeah they're looking for safe haven and they believe this this place the girl can be safe and they're all there of course Haley knows that he knows that carl's a murderer because he too is a murderer look i know a lot has been made about Henry and Brooks being victims. And they are. Come on. They are to a certain extent. But the majority of these 20-plus boys that were murdered, raped, sodomized, and tortured were there because of hit books. They were their friends, acquaintances, and they brought them into the spider web that's Pearl's candy shack, okay? So at some point, you have to just let go of the fact that these kids were also victims and that they are actually part of these, these crimes. So I lose a lot of sympathy when I can see Stockholm Syndrome at second unit somewhere, but these guys are willing participants. They were living somewhere else. One of them got a girlfriend pregnant, was fiance pregnant. They were about to get married or they were married. These guys are participating because there's money involved. Remember, the candy man is paying them. He gave one of them a Corvette. The other one, he was paying them $200 for every child that he brought him. So I, I have a little, a very limited sympathy for these guys um, and what they went through. So back to what happened. 
these kids all wake up and Hindley is now wide awake and Cora removes the gag from his mouth and tells him that he screwed up for bringing that girl here. And he's telling him, I'm going to kill all three of you. And, you know, he, he, he really tells him, man, you blew it. You know, you bring this girl here and I'm going to kill you all. And he, this guy's really boasting what he's going to do then. But Kinley calms Coral down, promising to participate in the torture and the killings of both Williams and, Cur- and, and Curly if the Candyman releases him. So the Candyman, I guess, remembering that this guy's helped him do all these things, releases him. And... You know, it just continues the torture of these both these kids. He puts Williams on her back, and then he informs Curly that his intentions are to look up his anus. And Henley begins to get high again while all this is going on. So he's not really convinced that he's going to stop any of this. And um, the Candyman hands him a hunting knife, order him to cut the woman's clothes on because. While he rapes, I mean, the canning man rapes Curly, he wants Henley to do the same to Williams. And Henley complies. He begins to cut the young woman's clothes off. And, um, you know, they're asking, is this for real? What are you doing? Of course, at one point, Henley begins to doubt that what he's doing is the correct thing. And he acts differently. Let me call back and we'll get to that, uh, well, to that climax in this story. Hey, Matt. Yeah, so we have Henley, who's participated with Coral in the killing of, I don't know, many young boys or or young men, I should say, teenage boys, whatever. Um, and I don't know if maybe he's sobering up or maybe it's that the girl's involved, but I would think he wouldn't be surprised that Coral is is uh, turning on you, that he's not a great guy at this point. But um, I wonder what he was thinking when he woke up um, handcuffed to the torture board. Well, well, he's, yeah, he's shocked that this is happening. And then, of course, Carl tell, tells him, you know, you screwed up by bringing this girl here. And so, you know, this is, it shouldn't surprise these type of individuals when you have a guy like Carl who, who murders kids for, that's what he does. He gets off on these, this guy, Henley has watched him torture children, you know, and, and he's been participating in killing these kids. And then both Henley and Brooks bury the kids in the boat shack and in different locations. So I don't, I, there can't be too, too much of a surprise, but at some point he sobers up a little bit. Maybe it was that he was tied up at one point and he was for either a, a short time victim to, to the candy man. And well, he ends up grabbing um, the gun when he tries to carry off or tries to begin to rape his friend Curly and Henley takes a gun that is there and you know I don't believe none of the story so let me call it for what that this guy Henley grabs Coral's prison and then says you've gone far enough Dean 
and he chambers around, I can't go on any longer. I can't have you kill all my friends. And that Wayne turns around, kill me, Wayne, kill me. That's a lot of movie drama. I don't think it had too much to do with that. I don't think any of that happened. I think there's self-preservation on the way of the part of Henley because he knows that after uh, he kills him, you know, he starts thinking of an alibi, he starts thinking of a way of how it covered this up a little bit. Not a lot, but I'm sure it crossed his mind. Look, this is not an innocent child. He is murdered and participated in the murder of dozens of boys. So I believe that he is at some point trying to figure a way of how to lessen his part in all of this, that he too was a victim. So when, uh, you know, Carl kind of steps towards him, Henley pulls up the gun and shoots Carl in the forehead. But the bullet didn't go through his whole skull and he continued to lurch forward. Again, this is very, very convenient. You shoot the guy, he keeps coming toward, according to Henley, but that's convenient. So he had, he felt his life was in danger. Again, it's an alibi. Um, so he fires off two other rounds and it hits Coral in the left shoulder. And suppose you, uh, the cannery man runs out of the room, hits a wall, um, uh, 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 sorry, excuse me, he hits the wall of the, of the hallway and then Hindley fires three additional bullets into his lower back and shoulder and he slides out the door. Um, he is now laying down and he dies where he falls. Uh, he's naked. Of course, his body is naked. So it does give credibility to that he was about to rape this other boy and everything that Henley said happened during the initial confrontation, I believe is to be true. But the shouting back and forth, I don't think, I think that's just him uh, making that part of the story up. So, of course, uh, now the candy man is lying dead by the hand of one of his own accomplices that he, according to the accomplice, tried to rape and kill him as well. So you're saying that you think he just killed him uh, he just murdered him. That it wasn't really self-defense. Yeah, I don't think that he lurched towards him. And I don't think that's true. That, that I believe that he tried to to begin raping his friend um, Curly. Then that Henley figured at some point that it wasn't what he wanted to do, um, and he just ended up killing the caddy man in order to really save those kids, of course, but save himself as well. And it's interesting because these are all later accounts, but Henley recalls then that after he shot Carl, that the only thought in his mind was that the candy man would have been proud of the way he behaved during the confrontation. Um, and he said that Carl had been training him to react quickly and forcefully and this was exactly how he had been taught to react. Again, there is a defense right there. You see it, don't you? Yeah, exactly. It's, it's too convenient, and that sounds more like a defense attorney than me making this happen. But nevertheless, um, the kids are crying. Um, Henley releases Curly as well as Williams from the torture board. They dress, and they supposedly discuss what should be done later. When 
you have two innocent boys, like Curly and then a young woman, Henley, not so innocent, you don't sit there and discuss, well, what should be our next course of action? They're probably very upset. They're probably telling him, you've got to call the police. And at some point, that's exactly what happens. They call the police, and around 8.24 a.m. that morning of August 8, 1973, the call is placed. And he says something to the effect is, you all better come right here, right now. I just killed a man. Sounds more like a public enemy uh, song lyrics, but uh, he gives the, the address, 2020 Lamar Drive in Pasadena, and um, the police show up to, to see what happens, and they find a crime scene that's pretty consistent with what he's saying, that he shot five bullets into the candy man that killed him. Yeah, so you're saying that, or are you saying that you don't think Henley probably wanted to initially call the police? I'm guessing he doesn't really want anything to do with the police uh, based on his his uh, previous actions. Well, yeah, exactly. I mean, it's, it's something that he is obviously trying to... He can't cover up. It's, it's out in the open. There's nothing he can do about that. But, you know, he's taken into custody. His Miranda rights are read to him. And then comes... The confessions where Henley uh, talks about Candyman and he recounts the events of previous evenings as well as, and of course, Carrie and Williams collaborated what he said. That Coral tried to rape and kill them, all three of them, and Henley defended them. But there's that whole part about the other boys that are killed. And they begin to explain that for the last three years that both he and Brooks, me Henley, and Brooks and him helped him lure teenage boys, uh, their own friends actually, to Coral, uh, who, had, who would rape and then murder them and they participated. And all these statements uh, are collaborated. And he also mentioned again, the sex ring, the sex ring in Dallas, Texas. That at, the, at first, it's thought about like a fantasy. No one believes it is happening. However, there is evidence that there was a Dallas ring operating at that time. There was enough evidence collaborated and confiscated by police at the Candyman's place that showed over 20 boys, even small children and teenage boys, involved in films and in pictures depicting sodomy, rape, etc. And those kids were actually later found as part of an adult in a sex ring type of operation in that area. So it does give collaboration that what the Candyman first told Brooks and Henley that he was taking these kids and he was paying them $200 because they're going into a sex slavery ring seems to, uh, to sing truth. Or at least part of it. So how do you think Henley went from, I, I would think in the eyes of detectives, being a victim? I mean, he was strapped to this board, and and I don't think his friends knew he was a, a murderer or an accomplice, or did they? I mean, how does he go from 
being kind of a victim to admitting that he's a murderer. Well, I mean, he starts explaining, look, he doesn't have experience. The police are asking him all these questions. He mentioned sex ring. Now he's mentioning all these things. They found the torture board. They found, actually, he's uh, Ford uh, Equaline. I'm not sure if I pronounced that correctly. Equaline, his, um, his van. And it has a lot of uh, sealed back windows with opaque curtains. The rear of the vehicle has uh, coils of rope. He has swatches of beige rug covered in soil stains. Um, there's wooden crates with wooden holes so they can drill holes and keep kids there. Now all these things are becoming true. So police all are a little inconsistent. There's a lot of different things going on. He first says he only uh, participated in six to eight victims prior to the murder, then it begins to grow. He starts talking about the $200 being given to Brooks and to him um, to lure kids to the apartment. The story begins to grow, and at the very end, Matt, what really gets police to believe what really happened, I mean, they knew something weird was going on. They needed collaborating evidence, and that's really what police detectives are looking for, collaborating evidence. Anybody can spin a story. There's a dead person. They want to know... Look, this guy's an influential guy. He owns a candy store. He's not a pedophile. No one knows anything about this guy. You just killed him. Now you're telling him you killed him because of all these other reasons. Give us evidence. Give us collaboration. And that's when Haley agrees to accompany police to the Coral Bolt ship. It's in Southwest of Houston, where he claims there are bodies. So they bring in two prison trustees to begin digging. And that's when they start finding bodies in different stages of decomposition. Um, they're wrapped in plastic. They have, uh, you know, ligature marks. There's bodies there. There's um, other ligatures around people, the children's necks, and they continue to find bodies. And look, it's, 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 a, it's a, a horror scene, basically, what they found. By this time... Police know that they have a a killer involved, and the claims that Hanley's making are partially or fully true. And you know, Hanley has gone to the Lake Sam Rayborn place. They find two more bodies there. Basically, they're finding dozens of bodies. This is a lot. And actually, at this time in the United States, there was a a serial killer that exceeded 25 murders. His name was Juan Corona, who was in California. He was arrested in 1971 for killing 25 men. But this name, this number of, of kids far exceed that. Uh, John Wayne, uh, over 33 boys in 1978. And this case still strikes as being one of the worst cases uh, in U.S. history. Um, there was huge issues with the way the Houston Police Department handled this. Uh, they had initially listed the boys when they were missing as runaways and possibly that they were sex workers and that this was the reason why they weren't looked for or even worthy of a major investigation. The families of the kids also said that a number of times people talked about that they saw 
Carl Berry what appeared to be bodies at his bookshed. Police went there. They found really nothing. They weren't really working that hard. So it's it, it goes to the trend that in this time in U.S. history, when boys or women disappeared and they were considered less worthy because they were runaway sex workers or drug addicts, police didn't do the job they were supposed to do. And this isn't just me calling this that. This is what happened. You had police in one county didn't share information with another county. And this is a big reason why some serial killers continued to kill for decades and they never got caught. And when they did, we find out that police had the information, but they wouldn't share it. Um, so moving on, we have the county man who's dead. Both Elmer Hindley and David Brooks were tried separately for the roles in the murders. They received uh, charges. They were convicted of those crimes. Um, and look, the truth is, these guys were not victims. Um, they did, in fact, get out. Um, you know, he, well, they're not that they're out right now, but Henley is supposed to get out in October of 2025, so it's only a couple more years. And Brooks um, had complications. He was doing life as well. Uh, and Brooks died at the age of 65. And um, that was the end of Brooks. Henley's still alive from last I checked and he should be paroled in two years. At least he's eligible for parole. That doesn't mean he will be paroled, ladies and gentlemen. He'll have to show that he's being rehabilitated and all this other stuff. Quite frankly, I don't believe he'll be uh, released. When you have sex crimes against children, and I'm sure he'll argue that he was in fact a victim, I don't see it as such. At one point, he was a victim, um, but if or Hindley wasn't really raped. He was asked to participate at which time he decided to do it two or three months later, like he said. So he had plenty of time to think about it. The motivation for him was probably the money, number one, and number two, of course, he fell into uh, the candy man's habits. And obviously he didn't stop him until maybe 30 plus boys in. So that makes him a fully aware accomplice and I have to lay blame on his shoulders and responsibility for what he participated in. Yeah, I agree. So I guess Coral is convicted of 28 counts. Is that right? Yeah, it's quite a bit. Yeah. They didn't find all the bodies because there was many more other ones. So you don't think all the bodies were in the boat shed, the storage locker, basically. Yeah, there was many more. Even there's unidentified bodies that were found in those times. Um, one such boy uh, was an unidentified victim. It was the 16th, 16th body found in that boat shed. Okay, so there's a lot of stuff going on there. They just put numbers next to them. This case continues um to draw attention because of additional victims that were part of this um investigation there was basically 42 boys that vanished in that area between 1970 and 1973 a lot of those boys um 
were in fact found at a high island beach. So we have bodies continuing to turn up and they're attributed to the Candyman. He is dead. And some of these bodies probably took place before he got Brooks and Hillary to help him. Um, there's also the fact of the uh, national sex ring. Uh, there are investigations that started in 1975 uh, and they discovered large, as I mentioned before, pornographic pictures and films of boys as young as eight, most of whom were from the Heights, the same area where the Candyman was you know, abducting and killing. And, you know, they are part of victims that are known to be part of the Candyman's circle, people killed, and they've been identified. So these films and these images give the suggestion that there is a national sex ring that the Candyman was a part of. And that in itself is scary because we can only imagine how many more kids tortured and murdered and sold into slavery by the Candyman. Okay, so Coral is kind of the heir to a minor candy fortune. Uh, he's not a wealthy guy, but, you know, he's doing okay. He's got money to offer these sort of disadvantaged kids or even transient kids a couple hundred bucks at a time. So I guess what I'm piecing together and tell me if this sounds right, that maybe he's selecting the victims he wants and potentially passing them on to someone that's sort of more of an organizer of this ring. Well, I believe that he, he's part of the ring. He could be a ring leader or he could be another piece. Um, I believe what's really going on here is that he's working with this ring as more as one of its parts. He chooses the boys that he wants for himself, tortures, kills, murders them because he's a serial killer. And he also supplies the, the sex ring with the boys that are not to his liking. For whatever reason, serial killers, just like, well, no different than, than you or I or any of the listeners, have a, a type. And you may like, a, she may be a beautiful woman, and, well, you're just not attracted to her in that way. Well, same thing with serial killers. The boys that he liked for himself, he kept, and he killed them. The ones that he, well, he got them, but they weren't the type that he wanted, or, he, or for whatever reason, he sold them to the sex ring. I think that's exactly what was going on. And look, we're we're unsure how many murders he committed, but um, we know of over thirty. I'm saying the number is probably well over forty-five to fifty. Yeah, but there was never a bust of you know a, a guy with a black book with 500 names in it or anything like that and this was in the early 70s so early to mid 70s so i'm guessing that ring has kind of died off or disbanded probably no it's possible but i mean these rings can can evolve into something totally new a different kind of sex ring and these people, these people by, by now are in their 80s, so it's not the same people. It could be somebody totally different. It could have shut down. But it's like drug dealers. 
if you take your arrest one, someone's always willing to step in to take over that thing. It's supply and demand. The sex training, as we know in the United States, is in high demand. Women, white, Hispanic, whatever, are sold into sex slavery. So are children every single day. So that the candy man's dead and his ring might be dead only means that someone else steps in that place. Yeah. And you're always kind of saying that people have evolved, you know, that they're always a step ahead. I don't know that Coral, he was actually pretty reckless, obviously in terms of his behavior, like to state the obvious, but um, he, he wasn't, he was pretty brazen about what he was doing, right? I mean, he had these accomplices that could have snitched on him at any time. Um, and yet he still got away with it for quite a while. But but you're always saying how the new group of serial killers, or in this case, sex traffickers, are uh, more sophisticated because they've had access to all this media. Sure, absolutely. Well, and, and, and people, the public's aware of this now. In this, this is more taboo. Um, kids like Brooks and Henley, were, they were coerced easier because, you know, it would come out and you're going to be ashamed of what you did. Nowadays, there's websites you can go to. There's more visibility. There's cameras everywhere. So, yes, serial killers as well as sex traffickers and every criminal in general has in some ways become more sophisticated in what they do to avoid detection. You have to in this day and age. Let me call you back. And so as I always advise people, if you see something, call somebody, report it, because you could be withstanding between a sexual killer, pervert, sex ring trafficker, serial killer, and their victim. Sometimes people tend not to want to get involved. The best thing is to prevent something from happening, especially when it involves a victim who's going to be tortured uh, or sold into slavery. Uh, so guys like Dean, the candy man, Coral does not exist. Um, you really are what helps uh, law enforcement bring these people to justice. Otherwise, happens is what happens with Coral. He gets away with it for years and you have possibly 40, 50 victims, murder victims, that could have been stopped if someone saw something and really took the time to call or investigate it properly and not just say, well, he's a runaway, that kid's not just worth it. So on that note, it really is everything we know about the Candyman, uh, which is substantial. This guy was an American serial killer, was a predator, and in my opinion, he met his end in an appropriate manner. His own accomplice, at one point a victim, shot him because he was trying to kill him and kill his friends. Yeah, I was going to say, we usually don't have this satisfying of a conclusion. These guys usually uh live out for a while so yeah it's good that no one had to deal with them and all of his bullshit at trial and all that so you know it's a silver lining i guess yeah a little a little too late 
Uh, not announcing too late or however the saying goes, but yes, it, it should have happened three years prior when he first started his streak with those two boys. Those two boys should have gone to law enforcement and told them what happened, but it didn't happen that way. At some point, he did meet an end. Unfortunately, several dozen young boys lost their lives and died in a horrible manner because monsters like the Candy Man do exist. Don't believe that they don't. This really happened, and the Candy Man was a real guy who did really bad things. So on that note, I think that is probably the end of the story on the Candy Man. Well, we'll be back next week. Until then, I've been Matt Ralston. And I'm William McGarrett. Be safe, be aware of your surroundings. Your life could depend on it. We'll see you next time.